Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. This is the 12th podcast in our series on the second half of world history. In the 11th podcast, we finished up in our discussion looking at the different lines of work that were available to the Americans that dared to risk everything that they had, including their own lives, to make it through the Mississippi River Valley and then work their way out west to find a different or new line of work. We looked at the role of the cowhands and we also looked at the role of the plantations out west and then finally a brief overview of the lighthouse keepers keeping America's shores safe not only in our Great Lakes but along both the Pacific and Atlantic coasts. In this 12th podcast, we're going to return now to Washington, D.C. for an overview of America's political system. This is the last outline that is specifically within the years of 1877 to 1900, although everything that I'll be discussing is a snapshot of what it was like then, but I will tie it to American politics and the American government in the 21st century. For some, as a student once told me many years ago, this particular series of discussions really is almost like getting a mini American government or political science 101 course in a lot of ways it is. But if nothing more, again, at the end of these podcasts on America's political system, you'll definitely walk away with a clear understanding about why our government operates the way it does from the ring of Secret Service officers around the president all the way to the uncertainty that often seems to be enfolding our America's Supreme Court. So looking at this starting podcast number 12, by looking at the American political system, first off, and I hopefully you're not driving in congested traffic or at a high speed now run on a treadmill because you're liable to lose your balance here or control your vehicle. But believe it or not, the American political system during this time period of the late 1800s and even earlier than that was really a form of entertainment. People looked forward to election years. Yeah, let me repeat that to make sure you're hearing that right. People actually looked forward to political ads to the political campaigns, whether it was midterm elections or every four years when America elects its next new president of the United States or reelects the incumbent that's in office. But it was a form of entertainment. But let's take that statement and put it in context of the time frame that we're talking about here. When I say it was a form of entertainment, remember that people aren't looking at their many subscriptions of the newspapers every day. My wife and I subscribe to two uh, regular delivery newspapers that I pick up at between five and six every morning from my mailbox. We also have an online subscription, too, to the Washington Post. 
but we like the paper edition of the Wall Street Journal as well as the Akron Beacon Journal for the local news, mainly because it's we like to stay abreast of what's going on immediately around us as well as nationally and internationally. But this wasn't common back then to have these subscriptions available to people at such a reasonable cost. What's more is that people were not looking at their televisions every night, wondering if their favorite sitcom was going to get bumped because of a presidential debate. They weren't even listening to the radio. So the idea of a political campaign, the aura around that is wondering whether one or more politicians might be coming your way, either within your home state or better yet, your hometown, or even possibly working working their way down your street campaigning. So as I say, it was a form of entertainment and the politicians loved it as well because that put their face in front of the voters. It gets their name out there. Remember, again, it's very difficult to advertise in these days compared to modern times. No presidential candidate throughout the 1800s or 1900s, for that matter, is sending out mass email campaigns. None of them have a website going up, right? This is all, that's all technology that is way in the offing here. So for the people of the time, when life then tended to be sedentary and repetitive, America's political system was something truly to look forward to. It also increased in popularity with the equal ability to vote that seemed to be evolving very slowly. When this country was founded in the sense of the Constitution written and ultimately accepted, that remember, it was a minority of people who could actually vote in this country. First off, all females were out of the question. So that eliminates 50% of your politicians or potential voters right there. Secondly, besides being male, you had to be 18 years or older. And I apologize, but you had to be 21 years or older. The idea of voting at 18 is not going to hit the United States until 1971. But you had to be 21 or older, male, and which a lot of people tend to forget, you had to be a property owner. To vote, you had to have proof of ownership of property. Oftentimes that rings hollow on my students saying, why would they have such a uh, standard established here? But think about it. Individuals who are only renting, they can be here today and gone tomorrow, but owning land ties you to the property. And because of that, you have more of a vested stake in truly vetting the candidates running for office to who would actually be the best individual to represent you, whether it's a town council, city mayor, state governor, or all the way to Washington, D.C., in our House of Representatives, Senator, or of course, President of the United States. But the times have changed though, and the ability to vote continued to evolve. As the 1800s wore on, as we know, post-American Civil War, minority men could vote. But it wouldn't be until the, until the early part of the 20th century that the woman could vote. And then in 1924, Native Americans being allowed to vote. And the hypocrisy of being able to send 18, 19, and 20-year-olds to war, but not granting them the right to vote. Think about how that falls in some very difficult or deaf ears. Yeah, you're young enough, you're old enough now at 18 years old to go kill in the name of this country to defend this country. Okay, so who got us into the war? Well, the president and then Congress ratified it. Okay, so as a soldier, I can vote for those people? No, no, you're not old enough for that yet. 
I mean, the, the hypocrisy was glaring. Yet again, we wouldn't change this until 1971. Yeah, we're right on, right on top of things. But please note, though, when I say that, and I want to stress the reason why with the equal ability to vote evolving slowly, is that when America's Constitution was ratified, there were a lot of founding fathers that had, had very little confidence that our Constitution was actually going to establish a potential solid framework for self-government. Heck, even Thomas Jefferson not only predicted but hoped that there would be another major military revolution, political revolution, roughly every 20 years. Many founding fathers walked out of the Constitutional Convention. They were happy to sign the Declaration of Independence, but there was no way that they were going to sign the Constitution of the United States. I smell a rat, so said Patrick Henry. So please know, as I say, the, the Constitution itself was full of question marks. Therefore, who could actually vote in this country? They, the founding fathers wanted it to be a minority, not that it had to be a minority, but it had to be a rock solid portion of American society. Males only was no surprise. 21 and older, no real surprise. Neither was it to be a property owner. But as the years progressed, and eventually America celebrated the 25th, 50th, 75th, 100th anniversary of our country's founding in 1776, the ratification of the Constitution in 1788, the Constitution taken effect in 1789, the anniversary of our Bill of Rights in 1791. All of these events helped to solidify the comfort, the, the confidence that America had in its political system. Therefore, the more confidence that's built into the system, the more the ability to vote will broaden by and large or as a rule of thumb. Please note that when it comes to national elections in the United States, when each state goes to the polls, please note that each individual of the 40 states has a significant amount of leadership, of ability to monitor and run the elections the way they see fit. What I mean by that is, for example, in the presidential primaries, and for those of you listening to the podcast that want to scream when it, you, it sounds like to you that you have both politicians running for, for the presidency seem to be saying the same things, or wait a minute, this Republican in October, a month before the election, seems to be flip-flopping from what he or she said back during the primaries, or vice versa, or with the Democrat. That's not uncommon. In fact, it is common, because that's the way you have the best chance of getting elected. For my international listeners, please be aware when I'm talking about a primary, is what happens is in America's, by and large, two-party system, the Democratic Party, which tends to favor more government solutions coming from Washington, D.C., versus the Republican Party, that, amongst other things, prefers solutions granted to the states to determine and less intrusive federal government. Candidates from both parties can run for office, or I should say hopefuls can run for office during the primaries. It's not unseen to have well over a dozen potential hopefuls 
trying to win their party's nomination. All 50 states from the last week of January through to the early part of June, each state will have their own primary where the citizens of that state can vote for a Republican or they can vote for a Democrat, but they cannot vote for both. That's a closed system, a closed primary system, meaning I have to reveal my political agenda or allegiance when I walk into my polling booth during the presidential primaries, not in November for the general election, just in the primary. So when I walk in, as Ohio is a closed system, I have to state whether I want the Republican ticket or the Democratic ticket. And then I take and I vote, and then that vote is confidential. Some people believe, some Americans, political scientists, historians, and other scholars, that the open primary system is more democratic. But think about it. If I am a diehard member of one party, I will take my own party's primary ticket and vote for the person that I do think would be the best candidate. Then I take the opposition political party, which I have no allegiance to, and I vote for the candidate that I think will be easiest to beat by the candidate in the party in which I am affiliated. That's the criticism why some states have a closed primary system. What's interesting is if you look back, for example, at the presidential election of 2000, during the primaries on the Republican side, George W. Bush was far more of a conservative. He won most states over his opponent also Republican, of course, John McCain from Arizona, George W. Bush beat John McCain for most of the closed primary states. But in the states where it was an open primary, John McCain beat his fellow Republican, George W. Bush. Why? Because John McCain was more of a centrist. He was more, he was more in the middle of the road than where George W. Bush generally sat. So what's interesting is the way in American politics, the ways our primary system plays out. And what happens is in order for the hopefuls to eventually get the party's nomination, they have to speak strictly to their own party's base. For example, in the presidential, uh, the primary season during the, for the 2016 election, when Donald Trump was ultimately elected president, before he was given his party's nod for the nomination, he was competing against 15 other Republicans who were trying to get the party's nomination. Therefore, when they're talking to the political base, they're primarily only talking to Republicans. Just as on the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton were talking to Democrats. So their language can be more pointed. It can be more or less, it can be less tolerant of the opposite political viewpoint because they want to secure their party's base. Now, once they get the nod and they've elbowed out the rest of the competition, by August, when the national political parties hold their national conventions, where the nomination is solidified in numbers of votes tallied, that's when the candidate from one party now is running for the presidency from an opponent of the opposite political party. 
to be fair, in most American presidential elections, there are other candidates running for office. For example, from the Libertarian Party, from the Green Party, they're by and large, though, not talked about because they garner so little attention. And therefore, it never translates into anything tangible in the sense of quality votes or certainly ever getting electoral votes. Are there exceptions to the rule with third parties? Absolutely there is. One of them being Abraham Lincoln. When he got the party's nod for the nomination in 1860, that was the Republican Party was only six years old, and they lost their first presidential election back in 1856, four years prior, when they ran John C. Fremont. So the party was hanging on by a thread when Abraham Lincoln agreed to be the party's nominee. So third parties, they can make a difference. They can actually displace another political party, but extremely rare. There are other exceptions to the rule, not as strong as the Republican exception, but I will talk about in later podcasts, specifically in the election of 1992 and the election of 2000 in later, in later podcasts. So with the presidential primaries over, and now it's one Republican talking to one Democrat, that's when it may appear to the American public that they're flip-flopping, that they're not nearly as strong in their convictions as they seemed to be a couple of months ago. They can't be, folks. That's the way our founding fathers set up the system. A Democratic nominee for president is not going to win only with Democratic votes, unless a lot of Republicans don't show up on voting day. Likewise for the Republican. So what happens is both candidates the liberal-leaning, left-leaning candidate starts turning, veering to the center. The right-wing conservative Republican candidate dis abandons that extreme path and now heads towards the center because both candidates' parties know they need to get voters from the other side or to persuade and or to persuade independents in hopes of actually winning the, pre the presidency in that first Tuesday of November. So please note, though, when it comes to third parties, they are generally not large in terms of the population. They have a very short shelf life, but they can send the major political parties a message. They can also help or harm the major parties. As again, I will talk about later on, when Ross Perot ran as a third party in 1992, when George H.W. Bush was running for re-election, and the Democrats nominated a barely heard of man by the name of Bill Clinton, Ross Perot garnered 19% of the popular vote, but he still never had enough to win one electoral vote. But third parties generally do not draw from voters from both parties. They draw from voters from largely one party or the other. With Ross Perot, he drew largely from Republicans. So he split the Republican ticket between the sitting president and Ross Perot, allowing the unified Democratic voter voting bloc to allow Bill Clinton to waltz into the White House in 1993 when he took the oath of office. The exact same scenario will flip-flop in our political system just eight years later. When Clinton is waltzing out of office, hoping his vice president will succeed him, Al Gore, Ralph Nader, an environmentalist, a very, very uh, liberal-minded individual, 
he threw his hat in the ring as a third party candidate. Big deal in the sense of even electoral vote. Electoral votes, of course, he got nothing. But even the popular vote, he only won two to three percent. You might say, well, then why am I bothering bringing it up? Because Al Gore lost that election by a tooth, by truly a hairline margin. So because of that, had those votes that went for Al, uh, Ralph Nader, who were largely Democratic voters, had they gone for Al Gore, it could have given him one more state, which is all he would have needed to win the presidency. So again, those would, third parties can both help and hurt the major parties, depending upon your perspective. So of those, so that's again, America's political system and how we get our major candidates like the presidents into office. So what I'm going to be talking about next is the presidency, Congress, a little bit of our judiciary, and then the bureaucracy. Certainly not at all in this podcast, as we only have about uh, 10 minutes to go. So that said, in terms of the presidency, let me right now, what I'm going to share with you is not only information that to make you more enlightened about politics in the 18 and 1900s, but it's also a way to understand what you constantly hear about in a current news cycle on a daily and regular basis. As I tell my students, it's one thing to know the history of something, but it's clearly something far more important. If I can tie that historical event or person to how it's affecting their lives today, I don't mean lives in just Northeast Ohio or Southeastern Illinois, I'm talking about throughout America possibly the world, as our, with our place in the world. But first off, in terms of the presidency, it's not uncommon to see two types of terms, two terms, excuse me, for the chief executive of the United States, of the executive branch. And it's the president, and the other term is presidency. As I sometimes will throw out to my class, is that just two different ways of saying the same thing? Two different terms for the exact same thing. More often than not, the students are right. They know they're they know they're different. They're different for a reason, but they can't put their finger on it. Simply put, when the press, if they're using it correctly, or even in a textbook, mentions the president, P-R-E-S-I-D-E-N-T, that's the individual office holder. That's the American citizen, the human being that happens to occupy the Oval Office at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., the address, of course, of the White House. The presidency, P-R-E-S-I-D-E-N-C-Y, has nothing to do with the human occupant. The presidency is the office that the founding fathers wrote about and articulated in Article Two of our Constitution of the United States. That's the reason why if you hear about an orders from the office of the president, that's correct because it's the occupant, the current holder that is making an executive order, statement, press release, who knows what. You wouldn't say from the office of the presidency because that is not a, that is not a human being. The office of the presidency is an object, an inanimate object that a human being has to occupy in order to execute the powers delineated by the Founding Fathers in Article 2. I stress this for a reason as well, because in not too recent American history, when our most recent impeached president, not once, of course, but twice, Donald Trump, he was surrounded by attorneys 
at various times during his impeachment trials, as was Bill Clinton, America's second impeached president. Trump is our third. Our first one, of course, being Andrew Johnson, our 17th president of the United States in the 1860s. But oftentimes the public gets riled up when a president is on trial for impeachment because they the press shows pictures or live footage of all of these high-powered attorneys surrounding the president. And of course, the good taxpaying abiding law citizen is curious to know how many of my tax dollars are paying to defend the president who obviously did some serious mishap here while he's in office. In other words, how many of my taxpayer dollars are paying for his defense? Ready for this? A lot of money and not a cent at the exact same time. Let me flesh this out, what I mean by that. Take Bill Clinton's impeachment trial of 1998. He was surrounded by high-powered attorneys, but only one was actually his. His first attorney was doing it pro bono for free was David Kendall. He could only do that so long before he finally had to step down because the investigation continued to be ongoing. And another personal friend of Bill Clinton's by the name of Vernon Jordan then stepped in as his second personal attorney. But Bill Clinton only had one attorney at a time. And if they weren't doing it pro bono for free, the defense would have come out of Bill Clinton's pocketbook. That's not an American uh, taxpayer uh, expense, not even close. But wait a minute, there were other attorneys all around there. Yep, those are the attorneys that we're on the hook for. Those are the ones that we are paying. But we did not pay them because suddenly Bill Clinton is on trial for an impeachment. They're on the books anyhow, whether a president is going through impeachment or anything else during his presidency. Those lawyers were not protecting the president. They were not looking out for his best interest. They were looking out for the future president's best interest. You might say, wait a minute, 1998, we don't know who's going to be president next. Exactly right. And that's what those attorneys are there for. What they wanted and had the right to weigh in on is when the investigative committee led by Ken Starr, who was bringing the charges of impeachment up against Bill Clinton, when they demanded something of the president, the president consulted his own personal attorney on whether he should or shouldn't comply with the request, but it didn't stop there. As a U.S. citizen, Bill Clinton had that right, just as you or I would if you are an American listener, but it didn't stop there because that American president is not just an American citizen. He happens to be the office holder of the highest job in the land, the president of the United States. Therefore, the lawyers for the office of the presidency would also weigh in on the decision, and they did not always agree. It has been argued by more than one political scientist and analyst that Bill Clinton, by and large, would not have gone down and been an impeached president had the lawyers for the office of the presidency not weighed in several times which allowed Ken Starr to carry the investigation further. But that is kind of the way the ball bounces when you happen to be the president of the United States. You don't get the luxury of only looking at the lawsuit in front of you simply through your, through your own lens. You're obligated now 
to something that is far greater than you, just the human occupier who is in the Oval Office for a term of either four or eight years. So that's just, again, a, a explanation of the president versus the presidency. Moving forward now, what I'll be doing is a quick overview of the presidency from Andrew Johnson, the 17th president of the United States, through President Taft, the 27th president of the United States. By and large, in a couple of phrases, those presidents and their presidencies were more reactive than proactive. They had very small staff, very few staff members around them. And these were the presidential, these were the presidents that more or less stepped into the public view when the public wanted them to. The idea of the president getting this kind of massive press coverage the way that he does or eventually she does on a regular basis, this would have been unheard of to this group of presidents and certainly even to the ones before Andrew Johnson. The, the office enlarges significantly and gains a tremendous amount of strength by the successor to, William, to, to President Taft and that is President Woodrow Wilson. So what was it about Woodrow Wilson that was so different that would largely change the office of the presidency for good from his time in office going forward? Ironically enough, it had very little to do with the man. It, were, it was the events, rather, that were happening all around him that in order to respond to them, the office of the presidency would have to shed its teenager skin in order to now step onto the world stage in an adult, in adult clothing to face the demands of an international society that were beckoning at America's, or beckoning at America's shores, both in the West Coast and the East Coast. So what were these chain of events that the president of the United States would get mired down into? Well, at only 29 and a half minutes already, and I pledged to always keep this under 30 minutes. It's a good thing my time's running out because I haven't got that far in the textbook. So let me read about that, of course, getting between now and then. In our next podcast, we'll continue our discussion on the Office of the Presidency under Woodrow Wilson. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great day.